Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Let's pray and dive into scripture. God, open our hearts to your voice. God, we ask in your mercy and grace that you would open us up to you. We recognize together, we don't need another talk. We need to hear your voice. We need to understand your revelation, who you are and how you are at work in our world and what your purposes and designs and heart is toward us, each of us and every person we're sitting beside and every person we rub shoulders with in this world. So we bow to you. And we pray, Lord, not just for ourselves, but we pray for the people around us. We ask that you would open their hearts to hear your voice too with us. We need your ministry today. Amen. Amen. All right, I wanna start with a, oh yeah, middle school, Apex. Get out of here. If you're in middle school, grade six, seven, eight, have an awesome time. You got your own thing, and I think Jerry and Ben are your people today, so enjoy it. It is made just for you. Awesome, okay. All right, so let me start with a question this morning. I want you just to think about your life right now. Think about your daily life, your daily world, people you are rubbing shoulders with, situations around you, the world that you live in. Where do you see or feel a need for God's presence and influence? Where is there a need? Think specifically, I'm sure you can say everywhere. Think specifically. Where is there a need for God to show up and bring his living, his life-giving influence and redemptive action right in your world? We're gonna come back to this. For now, come with me to the opening chapter of the Bible. If you have a Bible, it's probably page one-ish after some intro. If you don't own a Bible, there's a stack on a bookshelf just outside the door. Feel free to take one, keep it, and grab it now, grab it after the service. There's also a really, there's loads of great Bible apps. There's one, just look up the Bible app and you'll find loads, um, the Bible app. Loads of, it's great, it's free. There you go. Um, Opening chapter of the Bible. The opening chapter of Genesis, which as we talked about two Sundays ago, is really the opening chapter of the story that makes sense of our story, of our lives and our world. That is the claim of the Bible, which we're digging into this fall. The opening chapters of Genesis are the essential context for making sense of our lives and our world in all of its beauty, and all of its warring brokenness. Genesis 1 is the story of our creation, is the prologue to all of our lives. And so if we are to make sense of our lives and world, we need to take time to listen to, to hear and make sense of God's revelation in the opening chapters of Genesis, which is what this fall study, Original Grace, is all about. So two Sundays ago, we began into this study exploring together the Genesis song of creation, or better said, the song of the creator. 
hearing it against the backdrop of the ancient Babylonian creation stories and others like it. If you were not with us, today's kind of part two. So I would commend to you to go back and listen to part one. It was two Sundays ago. It's on all the usual places, I think. It's not quite on. I don't think our uh, podcast has been updated yet. So website and YouTube, there you go. But this morning, we want to focus in on the final portion of the creation song, Genesis 1, 26 to 2, verse 3. The portion that speaks about our creation, the creation of humanity and our purpose in this world. One last thing, point of reminder, is that as we enter into Genesis 1, it's always worth reminding ourselves, Genesis 1 is not primarily a science text. It is a theological text. It is about God. It is about the creator more than the creation, which isn't to say that it has nothing to contribute to the study of science or the conversation about science. Truth it is, it has much to contribute, particularly because of its affirmation to us that God has created all things with order and purpose, which has inspired many people to go into the sciences. Sciences do not need to be seen as a rejection of God's revelation and God's rule. It could be an act of worship of a God who has made a world worthy of study. All that to say, amen, I received that. But the main point, the main purpose of Genesis isn't to satisfy our curiosity about how the world was made, but to satisfy our need to know the God who made the world. Our need to know the God who made the heavens and the earth, which includes us, and to know why he has made us. For what purpose? So those are the questions that are in our minds, I hope, as we engage in Genesis 1. Who is this God who made the heavens and the earth? And why did this God create us? For what purpose? So come with me again to the opening of the biblical song of creation, to its proclamation and celebration that Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is my last repetition from two weeks ago. We talked about this, how this opening two verses is an announcement of good news. And I wanna say it again because we need it, because so often we can feel and fear today in this space, in this moment in history, that the forces of chaos are so pressing, too pressing, too loud, too strong, maybe even taking over. Don't we all feel like that at times? You wake up in the night and you cannot go back to sleep because the forces of chaos seem to be too present, too strong, maybe even taking over. In the ancient world, it was commonly believed that these forces lived in, ruled from the waters. We hear this in many of the ancient Near Eastern stories. But in the opening lines of Genesis 1, we are invited into the grace of knowing that the forces of chaos represented by the waters are not in charge. No, there is a God who is over the waters. There is a God who is over the waters and was in the beginning and still is. And this God is good. He loves all that he has made. He is for us. He is with us. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth, all things. As Psalm 24 verse one declares, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. What a helpful summary of Genesis 1. There's one God who created all and who sustains 
all. And who created all, not by the result of some cosmic struggle or vengeful scheming between the warring gods, we talked about that two weeks ago, or just as a random act, but in the purposeful speech of God. Nothing in all of creation is a God which needs to be feared or appeased, but all that God has made, all of creation is good. All of this we explored in our teaching two Sundays ago. But that's not all that Genesis 1 teaches. And this next revelation might not seem so obvious, but it's hugely important, hugely integral to a biblical vision of life for all of us. And it's this, that creation itself is God's temple. All of creation, the whole of creation is God's temple. You see, in in ancient Near Eastern creation stories, at the conclusion of the story of the creation of the world, the gods would always build a temple to reside in and be worshipped in, where others could bring them food and the like. For instance, in the Babylonian creation story, we talked about the Enuma Elish last time. After Marduk the chief God in the Babylonian world. After Marduk created the world and then humans as slaves of the gods, Marduk builds a temple to be worshipped in, what historians refer to, believe to be the ancient temple Isagila in Babylon. But here in Genesis, as Joseph Lamb writes, creation is not the prelude to the building of a temple. Rather, the creation itself in its entirety is God's temple. It's exactly what God says to us in Isaiah 66, verse one. Heaven is my throne. Heaven, all of heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? In other words, the God of creation does not need a temple on a hill because every hill is his. The God of creation does not need a temple in a certain city because all of creation is his temple. All of creation is the domain of God's kingdom, of God's glory, of God's rule. All of creation, which we need to celebrate, to hear and celebrate, because too often Christianity and the Christian life has been presented in ways that have marked out big divides between the so-called secular space and sacred domains, as though God is active and involved in some area or maybe one area, but not the rest. And this shows up a lot in how we talk about work right? As though some of us, myself, maybe Clayton Dugan over there and others, have a more holy vocation than those of us who work as engineers or project managers or or artists or realtors, whereas mine is a calling from God, others have jobs and have to find other ways to serve God, maybe after hours or on a lunch break. But it's a lie, according to Genesis 1. It's a lie. Amen. Two. Oh. Because all of creation is God's domain and God's temple, which means everything that we do with our hands, with our lives, can be and is to be an act of worship and service to our God. Thank God. Amen. Which is why the Apostle Paul can say in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, wherever you are, all the time. 
Which leads to the next big idea in Genesis 1. And this, as far as I can tell, is a radical revelation that has led to and calls us to radical revolution. Listen with me to Genesis 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase. In number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves over the ground. Verse 26, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. What does that mean? What does it mean that God created us, you and I, and every person that has ever walked this earth in his image? And what does it mean to live this out? In truth, over the years, Christians have explained this in so many different ways. It depends which book you're buying, which era, which place. I remember a professor in grad school referring to this as one of the most evangelistic ideas in the whole of the Christian lexicon. But heard in its ancient Near Eastern context, the concept is not elusive or flexible or slippery, especially when we read, remember that in, according to Genesis 1, All of creation is God's temple. All of creation is God's temple. So let me ask you, if you were to enter a temple this afternoon, what would you expect to encounter? And don't think Western cathedrals, think Eastern temples. Think of a temple in Thailand or Burma or India. What would you expect to see? At the heart of the temple, you would encounter idols, right? Images of the gods. In the ancient Near East, these idols or images were thought to be far more, as they are still today by many, far more than just a wooden or a stone statue of a god. As Bruce Walke, an Old Testament, a trusted Old Testament scholar, explains in his brilliant study on Genesis, in the ancient Near East, it was widely believed that a god's spirit lived in any statue or image of that God with the result that the image could function as a kind of representative of or substitute for the God wherever it was placed. Do you understand what he's saying there? An idol was thought to embody the real presence of the God in whose image it was made. And this belief carried over also to how many ancient peoples perceived their kings or their pharaohs, hence King Tut. This is not an image, I don't think, of King Tut, but I couldn't find a royalty-free image that I couldn't be sued over. (laughs) King Tut, the 12th pharaoh of the 18th Egyptian dynasty who reigned from 1332 to 1323 BCE, whose intact sarcophagus was discovered 101 years ago in 1922. His name literally means in the image of Amun. Tutankhamun, in the image of Amun. I know we've talked about this before, but it is so instructive. Amun being the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon in those days. And so the people believed that their king was made in the image of Amun. 
So much so that when Tutankhamun spoke, Amun spoke, they believed. So much so that when Tutankhamun decried the infidels, Amun decried the infidels, they believed. Because he was the living image of Amun, made in the image of Amun. So in ancient Babylon, in ancient Egypt, alongside of the worship of their God, king, ancient Near Eastern peoples would create statues or idols in the image of their gods, believing that these idols actually possessed the life of the God, that these idols actually represented the presence of the God, and that the spirit of the God lived in this idol, which meant if you wanted to commune with God, you would go to the idol. If you wanted to serve the God, you would bring some food to the idol, you would pray to the idol because the statue, the idol, created in the image of God was thought to embody the real presence of the God in whose image it was made. This was a familiar concept, an everyday idea that applied specifically and solely to idols and to kings who, let's be honest, were always male. No other human being in the ancient world was ever thought, spoken of, as created in the image of God. No other human being. Only an idol or a king or possibly the king's firstborn male heir. Are you tracking with me? Have I lost you? If I have, you're asleep and that just works for you. (laughs) So this is a common concept, this was a common concept. An everyday reality in the ancient Near East as it still is in some places today. Everyone understood this, including the Israelites, especially in the days of their exile in Babylon as they walked by the statues of the gods of Babylon day after day. They watched people worshiping the images of the gods, laying food at the feet of the altars, wrapping blankets around the statues at night, adorning them with garlands, And cowering before the king, because he's not just the king, he is the presence of God himself. At times they themselves were likely pressed to bow to the Babylonian gods. All of which must have grieved, tormented the hearts and minds of the ancient faithful Israelites who worshipped one God, believed in and worshipped one God, bowed to one God Yahweh, who had revealed his superiority over all the other gods, especially in the Exodus, when God rescued the Israelites from the oppression of Egypt, but also in that showed his power over all the gods of Egypt. But here's the fascinating thing in this ancient world. Despite the Israelites' passionate conviction that Yahweh was the only God worthy of worship, the only God, their worship Israelite worship did not use any idols, right? Or any images of God. Why? Because Yahweh told them not to. As Exodus 20, verse 4, the second commandment reveals, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not make for yourself an image, an idol in the likeness of God. Why? Because no created thing could ever rightly represent the creator. No created thing could ever truly represent the creator. Unless, unless God, the creator, created something 
in his image. And this is the startling revelation of Genesis 1, the climax of the biblical song of the creator. Genesis 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them and placed them in the temple, God's cosmic temple, the world. Do you feel something of the revolutionary reality of this. This was an unheard of idea in all of history, in all of the world. This is such a common idea today. Why? Because of God's revelation of this in Genesis 1 that has broke through our world. In a world where humans had no value in a world where gods cared nothing for the humans. Humans were created as slaves of the gods. That's what everyone believed and taught in the ancient world. In a world of idols and statues that were above all to be prized. If you did anything against that statue, if you smudged its face with some ash, you could be sent to prison. You could do anything to your neighbor anything to your slave, but not to the idol on the mantle. In a world that has no value on a human being, a world of gods who care nothing for humanity, a world of idols and statues that are prized as invaluable, and the concept of Yahweh's command to not make any image, anything in the image of God, because nothing we could ever create could truly and fully represent God. God chose to create all humanity in his image. All humanity. Hear the wide declaration of that. All humanity. All people, male and female, in his image. Again, some, an idea never heard of in the ancient world. All humanity. Not just a pharaoh. Not just a king. Not just a statue on the in the temple. But every woman. Every woman. Every man, every child, every senior citizen, every infirm person, everyone, 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 everyone created in the image of God and called to be his representatives on earth. Really? Got some announcement going on over there. I'll take a water break. Everyone. This is the declaration of Genesis 1. Every man and woman, not just a pharaoh or a king, an idol on a temple, not just Jews or Christians, not just some select few who live in this land with this heritage, but every man and every woman, every child, every elder, every one of us, created in the image of God and consequently bearing immeasurable worth and value and dignity and called to be a representative of God in the places where we exist, commissioned under this God to value others as God does, to value ourselves as God does, to value the rest of creation as God does. Hear this verse once again. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that, so that what? It says so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So that what? So that we may dominate? 
abuse, exploit, use, neglect, ignore the rest of creation. This is how this verse, an idea has often been interpreted down through history. Many historians, secular and Christian, will link the historical roots of the ecological crisis back to Christian ideas derived from Genesis 1 to 26 and following. But that is not what Genesis 1 is saying, is it? Yes, we are created and called to rule, but to do so as God does. As God does. This is what it means to reflect the image of God. We, humanity, have been created in God's image. A God who has made the world in love with purpose, who loves all that he has made, who is committed to it, and in that has placed us in his temple as his image bearers that we might reflect God's image, God's priorities, God's values, God's ways, God's care, God's character in how we relate to one another and ourselves and the rest of creation that we might speak and act and live as God's representatives in the places where we live and the spheres in which we have been given influence. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's so much that could be drawn out of this, but there are two things this morning that I'm convinced we need to get a grip on or be gripped by. And the first is that Genesis 1 declares to us the value of every human being. Every human being. And let's be honest, we need to constantly have our vision of the value of every human being expanded. In the world of the ancient Near East, human beings had no inherent value, except the Pharaoh, right? Women and men, young and old, were just a means to an end, a dispensable tool both in the eyes of others and the gods. According to the Babylonian creation story, humanity was created solely for the purpose of being the slaves of the gods. No wonder they were dispensable. Consequently, as many historical studies can attest, it was not uncommon for children to be thrown away, abandoned, offered to the gods as food. In fact, in ancient law codes, there is no concept of justice for a foreigner or a slave because a slave and a foreigner weren't actually considered fully human and therefore did not deserve justice. At best, mercy. This wasn't just the situation in Babylon in the ancient world. It's the case in most ancient cultures as it is in some parts of the world today. Only the Pharaoh had inherent value because he alone was made in the image of God. So in Genesis 1, By speaking of humanity, when God speaks of humanity, every man, every woman, slave or free, citizen, foreigner, queer teen, pregnant mom, all as created in the image of God. The God of Genesis has declared the value of every human life and has called us to value and honor and protect it because God does. At least the God of the Bible does. And not just in Jesus, not just in the New Testament, but, but in the beginning, in Genesis 1. Thank God. And coupled with that, coupled with this dignity and worth is a calling. 
a responsibility and a privilege to reflect God's image. As one Genesis scholar writes, humans aren't just made in God's image. They are called to be his image in the world. Let that sink in. Because this is a major pivot from just a sitting away saying, oh, I'm so thankful I am made in the image of God. It is a calling to be God's image in the world. A world that needs to know the God of original grace. This, according to the God who's made us, is at the heart of what it means to be human. This is what we've been made for, that we would know and trust and worship and follow God. And out of this, in this, we would live our days as God's representatives in the places where he has put us. Ambassadors of God's influence in our everyday world, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, our dorms, our classrooms, in our friends' lives, in the matters of the world that are within our grasp. It isn't enough to just believe that we have been made in the image of God and therefore have worth. We are called to be image bears, God's image bears, to reflect his image in the world for the sake of the world, right? Think about the ancient world and what it was like to be classified in one of those sectors of people who were viewed by everyone else as nothing. What a gift it would be to have a faithful Israelite step in your life and treat you as a human being with value and honor and dignity not someone to be cast off, unbelieved, sent away, shipped off. Which, if we stop about it, is exactly what Jesus is after in the New Testament. When Jesus shows up and says to a bunch of folks and to us, come, come follow me. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women. Jesus is inviting us to come and know God in him, And that as we follow him and come to know him more and live our lives in him and with him, we would become like him. We would come to share in his heart and his values and his priorities. We would come to bear his image, to be vessels of his life to others. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women. I will make you vessels of my life to the world. So let me circle back to the question I asked at the start. I asked you to think about your life and your world right now and where you feel there is a need for God's presence, for God to show up and be at work to redeem and restore, could it be, could it be that God has brought you into this situation or situation so that through you, created in his image, filled with his spirit, God might show up and be known God might, through you, bring something of his influence, priorities, and hope. This is what being made in the image of God is about. So let me close with a few practical, what do we do with this? What's God's invitation for us today beyond just amen, though I appreciate it, John, and others? Seriously, I do. Three things come to mind, I'll say them briefly. One, it seems undeniable that Genesis 1 is, at the most basic level, it is an invitation to every one of us to come and know God as God is. 
There's no way. It is impossible to reveal God and reflect God to others if we do not know God as he is. And all, we all know the world does not need any more false representations of Jesus. What the world needs are men and women who will truly, honestly, humbly, wholeheartedly seek to know and follow Jesus. To live in alignment with Jesus, in obedience, in faith, whose lives are caught up with God's passions and priorities. That is what our world needs what God is after. So for me today, for us, I think again and again, Genesis 1 is an invitation to come and know this God. If you do not think God is worth worshiping and reflecting to the world, you do not know him, so come. Come, Jesus is saying, come with me. Come and know the Father. He's better than you ever thought he was. Through his word, in the community of his people, in dependence upon the Spirit, come, let us seek and know the God who has made himself known. Second, with that, there's an invitation, I think, for us to a renewed dependence upon the Holy Spirit, upon God's Spirit in this, for this. Genesis 2, verse 7, we'll talk about this next week, but it reads, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Much could be said about this, but one thing is absolutely clear. We cannot do the thing that God has called us to do, the thing for which we've been created, to bear God's image, apart from God's empowering of us, apart from God's grace at work in us. Friends, hear this. You can't do this. We can't do this. We can't bear God's image. This is only something that God can do in us as we bow to him with open hands, open hearts, open lives to the God who has given himself to us in Jesus. And let's be honest, we can just name it right here. We have failed to bear God's image. And thank God we're not the end of the project God has shown up in Jesus, who Colossians says is the image. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The exact representation of his being, Hebrews tells us. He has come and offered himself to us to reveal the Father to us, that we would bow before him, receive his forgiveness, what he has given us through the, his death on the cross, and receive his spirit to bit by bit, day after day, as we follow Jesus, to find our lives filled with God's life, the spirit of a living God, which again leads me back to Jesus. Even yesterday, thinking about my life and my longing to bear God's image, my mind ran back to Jesus' opening words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, beginning of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love that verse. I love that revelation from Jesus. Blessed are those who will stop hiding or pretending that they just have to get it together or that they have it together and can just keep it together. Blessed are those who will stop hiding and pretending and who will confess that they can't do it and who will, in that knowledge, turn to Jesus to do what only he can do in them and through them. Some of you need to hear this today. Bearing God's image is not about doing your best to keep it together and then keeping it together. Or doing your best this week to get it together 
and then keep it together. Or even to do your best to be like Jesus. No, bearing God's image is what happens when we bow. We open our hands and hearts and lives to what God alone is able to do in us, through Christ, by the Spirit. And third, lastly, Genesis 1 invites us to be God's image bearers wherever God has placed us. You don't have to, we don't have to do everything, be everywhere for everyone. Can I just say that again? You don't have to be, do everything, be everywhere for everyone. We don't have to save the whole world. That is Jesus' job and he knows what he's doing. Our calling is to bow and to participate in what God is doing in the place where he has put us. In the place where he's put you. For his glory, for the good of that world and your joy in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, Father Jesus, Holy Spirit, God of the gospel, creator, redeemer, sustainer. Forgive us, God, for the ways in which we have often tried to bear your image apart from bowing to you. Forgive us, God, for the ways in which we have allowed the other narratives of the world to tell us who we are and who someone else is. Whether it's someone next door or in our own home or in our classroom or on the other side of the picket line. God, we need, we need your revelation. We need our hearts and minds and lives to be shaped by your vision of reality, including all humanity. Every person that you have made, we thank you, God. And in Genesis 1, we discover grace, a good God, better than the world could ever imagine, better than our hearts can fathom. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would renew our hearts, our minds to see you as you are and in that to know ourselves as your children, to know one another as your beloved sons and daughters. We bow to you and ask that you would, we open our hands to you again today and ask that you would fill us with your spirit spirit of humility and faith and love. In worship of you and in love for all that you have made, Lord. Come and open us up to you and fill us, Lord. Amen. Amen.